Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for Mito Action's podcast, Energy in Action. I'm Kyra Mann, CEO of Mito Action. Here on Energy in Action, we talk all things Mito, and I'm glad you're here to learn and be part of our community. Welcome to this week's episode of Energy in Action. I'm your host, Stephanie, and it's my pleasure to be hosting this podcast. So thank you for joining me. Today, we are being joined by an expert in both being a patient and a genetic counselor. Devin Schumann is a genetic counselor in the greater Seattle area. She has a great following on Twitter and is what I like to call a professional dot connector. She is always looking for ways to help people find the answers they are looking for. Now, before we get started, let's just do a little housekeeping. We know that people do all sorts of things while listening to our podcast. So don't worry about jotting things down. We'll have all of the information mentioned in the show right there in our show notes, or you can go over to mitoaction.org and follow the links there. Now let's get to it. I'd like you to meet Devin. Hi, Devin. Welcome to Energy in Action. Hi, thanks for having me here. It's always nice to talk to more Mito people to start off your day. It is a great way to start the conversation to go ahead and be with people in your tribe. That's for sure. Devin, why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners more about you and how you're connected to the Mito community? Yeah, so I am 30 years old, and I was actually diagnosed with Mito right around the age of 16. Now, I had symptoms my whole life, so my older brother had more symptoms than me. He went through the diagnostic odyssey, but it was around 16 that they kind of picked up what was going on, looked at me, and went, oh, that explains a lot. And so I had a presumptive diagnosis for the first couple of years. We waited till I was out of high school to do a muscle biopsy to confirm it. And that's when we figured out I have mitochondrial DNA depletion syndrome. That's a subset of mito I have. From there, I was already kind of learning about biology because what's mito? You're in high school. What do you do? You Google it a lot, right? So I did all my high school papers on it. And luckily, my first year of college... I went to a free pizza lunch on genetic counseling, and I was like, wait, this is perfect. This is what I'm already Googling. This is what I already love doing. And then I became a genetic counselor for there. So I've been in the Mito world for about a decade now, going to conferences every year and whatnot. And then I've been a genetic counselor for about five years of that. So pretty much my entire life is Mito and genetics. And I love it. Well, I didn't know that about your brother. Do you both have the uh, DNA depletion syndrome? Yep. So it's autosomal recessive. So both of my parents carried the condition. They both passed it down to us, which I remember some doctors being like, oh, that's bad luck. I'm so glad that they did, though, because honestly, I don't think I ever would have found a diagnosis without my brother because my symptoms were more vague and more general. I can't imagine what it would have been like to go through this without a sibling who gets it, without somebody that you kind of always have by your side. And it's part of why I'm so passionate about teens and young adults finding other people with Mito. I run a couple online support groups because I just think it's irreplaceable to have that person that you can say half of a sentence and they're already nodding because they already get what you're trying to get into. I understand that. I work, I'm in a couple of groups with other parents who have mito kids or rare disease kids, and it's just so magical to find somebody who speaks your, your language, as they say, and to understand exactly why you're making the face you're making without having any words. It's very empowering. So what were some of your symptoms that you were experiencing that made your parents kind of track in and say, mm, we need to tune into this? For me, I had failure to thrive as a baby. So... In theory, nowadays, we maybe would have picked up what was going on, but 30 years ago, they were like, 
she's tiny, she bounced back, she's fine. So for me, they just thought I had mono over and over when I was a teenager. They were like, well, you screened positive for mono, the main signs of that are you're tired. So they're like, she must have it again. Sometimes it can last months. And so I just remember them being like, well, you still have antibodies, which you can have for life. But they just kept circling back to that must be what's going on. And I was missing, honestly, 80 out of 180 days of school my junior year. And I was in a lot of AP classes. I was going to every school dance. I was doing clubs after school. It was honestly just I didn't understand that I had to manage my energy. And so... I was overdoing it. I would go to a school dance and I didn't know, but I was triggering rhabdomyolysis where your muscles break down. I thought that was normal that you shouldn't walk after a school dance. (laughs) So I'd go to a dance and then sleep for a week. I was doing okay in classes. When I stayed home, I would do homework from bed. And so it was just kind of missed. They were like, oh, she has migraines. That's why. Oh, she gets sick a lot. That's why. She's got mono. And then we were like, hold on, wait. Even with mono, most people don't miss half of a school year. Most kids aren't in bed after a dance. There's something else going on here. And so when they figured it out for my brother, they were like, oh, okay, this makes a lot more sense than we realized. I like that you were able to have your brother sort of as like your your litmus test so that your parents are able, I don't like to say compare, but they at least had a very familiar subject to say, Devin is looking a lot like, and so they were, they had that opportunity to hone in on your symptoms a little bit quicker. Yeah. I mean, I always joke that I owe my brother so much just because honestly, he had, I think, three different biopsies over time. He did the whole seven years of seeing seven specialists, like that whole process. He did the ER trips. He kind of did the poking and the prodding. And that's not an easy thing to go through. I think a lot of people with Mito have a lot of, honestly, trauma from going through some of those processes and going through not being believed. And like I said, I don't know if they ever would have figured out what was going on with me Because I just kind of thought it was who I was. Like, it popped up when I was a teenager. You change a lot as a teenager. So I just figured this is the normal changes you go through. Not realizing, oh, some of that is like a bad symptom. You probably should look into that. And if that's what you know, that's all you know, right? I mean, if you don't know anything different, it's, you know, that's all you know. So that makes sense that you are just thinking, well, this this must be how I am as a teenager. It's a running joke on the teen calls I do where we're like, someone will mention something seemingly silly. Like, if you can't fall asleep, you know, I like chugged a Gatorade and then I fall asleep right away. And everyone's like, wait, me too. And, you know, our parents are looking at us like, what do you, what sugar doesn't help you sleep? And it's not like when the sugar crash happens, it's like immediate. And the only conclusion we've come to is like, our body's so tired that we're overtired. And having that little bit of sugar lets your body finally be like, I have what I need and shut off. But it's so random. And yet half the people I talk to are like, oh, my God, I do the same thing. Or like having ice cream first before dinner. And I'm like, well, if I have the ice cream, then I have the sugar and protein I need to make dinner to give me the energy. And like 10 people are like, oh, my gosh, I do the same thing. Till you realize half your friends do it and everyone else is looking at you like, what the heck? And you're like, okay, never mind. Maybe this isn't normal. (laughs) 
I love that you have uh, dessert appetizers. That's that's amazing. I might I'm going to definitely copy that for my son because I think that would be a useful tip for him. Now that you say that, that's a great one. Especially after school, or for me, I'm lucky enough to work. After work, I'm exhausted. The effort of making a healthy meal is hard. Eating a bowl of ice cream, though, gives me that kick, and then while I'm on the sugar, I can go throw everything in a frying pan and make actual food that my body needs. Right. Excellent. Where did you guys grow up, and, and where was like your diagnosis is done at? So we live in outside of Seattle, Washington. So that's where I grew up. I bopped around a lot for school. We went to, gosh, I think we went to Seattle Children's once or twice. When we first figured out what was going on, we like checked in with the Mito Clinic there. And then I was an adult because it was right around 18. I had the muscle biopsies. They did the biopsy there. But then I think I kind of never really circled back with them. I just transitioned myself into the adult doctors at the University of Washington Medical Center. And that's where a lot of my specialists all are. I will always say my story has a lot of privilege that led to it, right? People took my, my symptoms seriously. We had something that shows up on a muscle biopsy. We also had family friends, my brother's childhood best friend and my childhood best friend's dad, who's a geneticist. And so he actually pointed us in the direction of Dr. Hirano in New York, right when we were first diagnosed. And randomly enough, he's like the expert on mitochondrial DNA depletion syndrome. So when we confirmed that's what it was, it was like, well, this is oddly perfect. So he's the one I followed with over the last decade or so. We would see him about once a year. Whenever I could fly, we used to fly out to him. So you are a genetic counselor. Are you in a clinic, in a university setting? What is the setting that you're in? I am currently in telemedicine at a nonprofit based outside of Washington. So it's called the Genetic Support Foundation. And they designed the company around this concept of we want to provide genetic counseling directly to patients without this like two-year wait list that a lot of genetics clinics have trying to create access and break down barriers, particularly for people who live in areas without genetics, and also in a non-biased way. So trying to make sure that the provider you talk to is not from the testing company, you know, as someone who is not going to say like, this is why the test is great, but say something like, you know, there's limitations to every test, which is reality, right? Like every test has pros and cons and kind of giving that non-biased consent, I'm going to do what I think is best for you is really the core of what they do. And that really spoke to me as a patient and provider, because I've worked at a bunch of different clinics. I've worked in big hospital settings. I've worked in tiny private practice. And there's a lot of it being driven by the doctors you work with, which is great, right? Like doctors have their purpose in the process, but it's nice to work at a company that's just focused on spending 45 minutes with each patient, diving into what you can do with help them, and then being there for phone calls and emails and helping walk them through everything. And Understanding that not testing for some patients is the right decision, right? And that's also totally fine. I always say my job is to tell you your options, not to make you do any of them, because it's not my life. It's not my body. Like, my opinions on what you should do really don't matter at the end of the day. Oh, I like what you just said, that that my job is to show you the options and not tell you what to do. I think that's a really powerful statement, Devin, because so many people go to their clinicians looking for... A directive and don't understand that they they are the director and that the patient really can drive the process 
And I think that's important what you just said, that there's always options on what is being told to you on, on how you can act or react to that information. And I think a lot of that comes from being a patient first. Yes. So have you used your own genetic findings for some of your research or hypothesis testing? Or I know as a mito mom, I've gone down the Google rabbit hole more times than I care to admit. If I had a nickel for every time, I would be at the top of the leaderboard for trillionaires. That's for sure. (laughs) I always tell people like telling you not to Google is pointless. We all do it. It's about trying to Google in the smartest way and trying to understand what links to click and how to interpret posts. Like I've met clinicians that say, you know, Facebook groups are dangerous or they're destructive. And I'm like, they're extremely empowering. They're amazing. And yes, you have to understand that people who are posting are often not the person that's doing super well and has no symptoms. You have to understand that you're getting a view of the mito world, for example, that is more focused on problem solving, people who are posting because they're looking for answers or a solution. And so it is hard when it's a new diagnosis to see all of these posts and think, oh my gosh, everyone with mito is going to have seizures in a feeding tube and pass away at a young age and have doctors that don't believe them. And it's like, sure, all that can happen. But it also doesn't make it likely just because there's 20 posts on it. I think the social media platforms, the Facebook groups, are a great way for families to be validated in a world where we have felt so illegitimized and gaslit and all the other words that are out there right now. It's so validating, like you said, to run across three other patients or three other parents who go, oh, yeah, we've done that. Yeah, no, exactly. Like, it's it's amazing how mind-boggling that can feel and just how that moment is it just transforms your life to be honest like I just think if I hadn't gone to my first symposium when I was like 19 or 18 I don't know what my view of this condition would be it would be I know it'd be very medical I know it would be here's a list of symptoms my doctor said to watch out for I know that it would probably be be focused mostly on what I'm losing which It's progressive, so life changes over time. But I think because I found that community from the start, it's it's a community. Like that's what I always say. Mito's not a diagnosis, it's a community for me. It's a career, it's everything I buy online. Like I'm currently wearing little Mito earrings that say power and house. And it was a gift from a Mito friend who I met at that first conference however many years ago like we're still friends wow and that's why we created some of these facebook groups for teens is we just didn't want to lose touch i can't imagine losing this connection how do we stay in touch let's make a facebook group and now there's like 500 people in it and now it is about how do we make sure other people have that experience so how does your group operate when you get so get a new member like and that new that new person comes into the group and they're just got their diagnosis they're absolutely terrified because they have found every black hole on google that there is what's the first couple of things you guys do to shore that person up to say hey this isn't you're not a lost cause well i will say that with mito i think a lot of us have lost our filter we joke we just don't have the energy for it so i think when someone new joins especially like one of the Zoom calls, we're all like, 
welcome to the chaos. And by the way, we're all going to be joking about everything. And it's just such a lighthearted conversation to the start. And I think that that helps. And I think when people are blunt and they're like, ooh, you were just diagnosed. Oh, I remember that was a rough period of time that messed with my brain. But like now we're fine. And, you know, people are just like, well, what is the top question? Like people will just cut right to the chase and not beat around. It's like, well, what are you worried about? I'm worried that I can't work. Okay, well, let's talk about how everybody has found different jobs and some people are on disability. Other people do have jobs and how we've all managed that and how that's changed. And again, I think we have a lot of people that are active who aren't passing away. Like, yes, we've lost friends, but I think a lot of people who are in the group, like one of my friends is in law school right now. I'm a genetic counselor. Someone else is a baker and does like, has like a cake business. Somebody else is an art therapist. You know, we have teachers. We have people who've left the teaching field because it was exhausting and found something else. Like people who've gone to college, people who didn't graduate high school. Like usually there's someone where we're like, oh, your situation sounds like blah, blah, blah. Let's put you in touch. And that helps. I mean, honestly, the one thing we shout is, look at us. None of us are the same person. Like we were all very different. We have very different backgrounds, very different personalities, and very different symptoms. And sure, some things overlap, but at the same time, like someone will be like, well, does everyone have a feeding tube? And three people go, oh yeah, I have one. And the other 10 people are like, I don't. And it's just this quick pull of, hey, look, we are not all the same. And yes, it can be a lot to go through something like getting a tube, but we can easily connect you with five people who have them and think that it was the best decision they've ever made in their lives. And they're so mad that they didn't do it earlier. But I think honestly, the big takeaway that we just shout at everybody is like, we are all different. Even siblings, me and my brother have very different symptoms. You cannot predict what's going to happen. Especially when it comes to siblings in the diagnoses world, I always say same recipe, totally different cake. All three of my kids are completely unique from each other. I only have one Mito kid. Um, he's considered a de novo. I want to circle back though on what you were saying about how the patient-clinician matches is so important. I'm part of um, the UDN peer group, and whenever we get together with the clinical sites, I'm always just taken aback by the level of passion and curiosity that these physicians show. They're not in this to write a book, to crack the code, do any of that. What they are truly looking for is how can I help this patient? How can I help them help themselves? What can we uncover? What not can we untangle? The curiosity and the level of compassion blows me away every time. And same when, when all the GCs are in the room and everybody's just digging in and asking questions. And it's like this huge ping pong game of questions and answers going back and forth. And have you tried and did you look? And I love watching just, it's almost like you can just see all these imaginary light bulbs going off across the room as these people are, you know, sharing their information and their their strategies. And, and this is all about one case like one person who's been reduced to a number where everybody's working like just totally crowdsourcing that information and I just don't think people realize that in this field especially now and especially in your age group Devin where technology and science and genetics have have sort of met up with each other now and we're only going to get better because of it and the amount of information you can uncover and 
and make correlations to is endless at this point. For mito diagnosis, for example, right? Like if you do whole exome sequencing and mitochondrial DNA sequencing, we find an answer about 40% of the time. And that's the same 40% that you hear for epilepsy, that you hear for intellectual disabilities. Like that 40% goes across lots of different conditions. And I think it really reflects this reality of we have 25,000 genes in our body and we have like maybe I'm overestimating eight to 10,000 associated with symptoms. Like, of course, we're almost halfway there, but we're not halfway there yet. Like, it's amazing how far science has come in a decade. How hard is it for you in your field? And I know just as a, as a, when I talk with, with parents who are newly diagnosed or their child is newly diagnosed and they say, well, we have this diagnosis, but it doesn't really change anything. Now we just have a name. And I and I am always very empathetic to that and go, a diagnosis does not equal treatment. Just it doesn't. It's I'm sorry. And so many people think that the minute that they get their 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 magical diagnosis and that that means they just get to be launched into a treatment category. And that that really in the rare disease world, that that just doesn't happen. And tell me about that from a clinician's point of view. My first job out of grad school was working at an autism center doing autism genetics. And I think I'm so thankful for that because, I mean, I knew it from the rare disease world, but it was really taught to me there by a giant counselor I'm still friends with. I love her. Um, She was like, look, the way you consent a patient is like, we're looking for the reason why. This will tell me what change in the recipe is making your chocolate chip cookies unique but it's not going to change how the cookies taste. It's not going to change your kid. Your kid is who they are. They've had whatever change we find since they were born. So it's not that we're changing who your child is. We're just learning more about why they are the way they are. And at the end of the day, autism was sort of that perfect example of we're still going to treat it based on symptoms. We're still going to say, hey, if speech therapy is helping your kid, we don't want you to stop that. (laughs) Like, Please don't stop that when you find out. But It's more about just knowing why. And that's why some people don't want to do testing, right? Like testing can be really expensive. And so we would have that conversation with families of it is possible, but it is very unlikely that the answer we find will give you a treatment that will quote unquote fix anything. Now, it might tell us medical management in terms of what to watch out for. So it is helpful there. Maybe you didn't know to watch your kidneys, but now you do. So it still can change medical management. It can sometimes open the door for clinical trials. It can open communities, right? It can help you find your people. And that can help more than you ever imagine. And it can tell you things like family planning, right? Is there a chance that my kids' symptoms will change over time, like financial planning and life planning in that way, but also planning for other people, like your other kids. Is this something that when they go to have kids, they want to test their partners to see if there's a chance their kid could also be affected? Like, it can have information that can impact even out to, like, your third cousins, right? Because your third cousins, when they talk to me, are like, I have this randomly family member that has Mito, and I don't know anything about it. And I'm like, well, find out if they do. Because I can probably tell you if there's a chance your kid will have it too, or if we need to talk about it more. And I think all of that is still helpful. It's just helpful in a 
different way than the narrative most people think of. Right. Your group that you lead on Fridays, is it only teenagers or do you have people that are like up into their mid-20s? Like, what's the age group for that? Yeah. So on the Friday Zoom calls, it's 15 through 35. We have a couple of people who are over the age limit. It was hard when you had someone who's 38 talking to someone who's 13. Like that is such a different age group. And so on Facebook, we have it divided into teens and 20s and 20s through 40s, you know, kind of focusing on more of that college independent moment in your life versus job living on your own young adult portion, which is very different than when you're in your 60s with Mida. Like it is a different thing that you're trying to go through. And we did divide that up again because the 13-year-olds were like, I don't feel comfortable sharing in front of the 30-year-olds. And I was like, I don't blame you. I will say we have a strict no parents rules for everything. So I kick all parents out at the door because I want people to be able to be like, this sucks. I don't want to do my homework. I'm too tired for this. Like, I want people to not worry that their mom's going to yell at them because they just said they didn't do their homework. The teen one we call Mito friends. And then the 20s and 40s we call Mito friend graduates, like people who graduated from the other group. But your son is more than welcome to join us. Yeah, I, I will definitely be uh, bringing those ideas forward to him to see what he thinks about that. I think it would be beneficial for him. I always joke around. We're kind of in the same diagnosis uh, timeline as you. And I always say we're one of the frontier parents of the mito world. Um, nobody knew a whole lot about it when he was first diagnosed. It was a head scratcher. And so I've been sort of the parent educator to our physician groups here in Minnesota and it would be great for him to find and click with other people because they're just, I mean, there really hasn't been that opportunity for him to have that because, you know, it's not one in 10, that's for sure. <laughs> that's kind of the amazing part too, though. It's like my friends are people I never would have met in real life. There's no chance I would have randomly bumped into some of these people that are now my best friends and I've been at their weddings and like we've been through all of life together. One thing I like to do on the podcast here is what I call random fire. I'm just going to ask you fun, five fun random questions. In the world of soft drinks, are you a Coke or Pepsi? Neither. Neither? Sprite. Sprite, okay. I don't do caffeine. No caffeine at all? It causes rebound migraines for me. Ah, okay. I am emotionally attached to my water bottle. It follows me everywhere. I have my Yeti. I'm with you on that one. What is one meal you would never say no to? A plate of chocolate. I'm a chocoholic. Any kind of chocolate? Milk or dark, leaning in the direction of dark. Do not like mint or peanut butter. But you probably don't want to know how much chocolate I got for my birthday last weekend. Yes, I do. It's a little bit bad. Well, there's possibly at least four boxes and or three things of chocolate-covered pretzels, too. <gasps> Ooh, I love chocolate-covered pretzels. That's an addiction. They're literally next to me at all times. Do you get the flips or do people go all gourmet on you and get you the real fancy ones? So one of my friends did a DoorDash delivery from some local bakery. And so those are like the long sticks that are dipped in chocolate and also Oreos dipped in chocolate. Mm. And then my dad got me Trader Joe's chocolate pretzels because I used to love Trader Joe's before COVID happened and they don't deliver it to your house. And then one of my friends from my last job sent me like a box of like the gourmet ones off of Amazon that are all dipped in different stuff. Wow. Yeah, it's very well known that I like chocolate, so it's literally all that I get, and I'm very happy with that. Nice. That and Mito stuff, like the earrings. Okay. 
if you could invite anyone to have a dinner date with, who would it be? Am I allowed to pick all of the teens on the Friday call? Because that's sure. honestly all that we want. We all joke that if we won the lottery, we would buy a plane to go visit each other. Oh. Some of them I haven't met, but we've seen each other every Friday for three years. I just want to meet them. Oh, can you imagine if you guys all met together for like a big dinner, how fun that would be? Well, I mean, that's what I used to do with the UMDF conference every year. We have a teen room that I run and it was just teen chaos for the whole weekend. And we had a prom and everything. It's great. Excellent. Okay. What is your pet or what would be your favorite pet? I have two pets that are mine, an African gray parrot named Kit, which is a joke. I'm allergic to cats, so she's my kitty. And then I bought Flemish giant rabbit that's 15 pounds big um, named Bun Bun at the uh, start of the pandemic. I don't cope with being alone. I buy animals. And then currently living with my family, they've got two dogs, a Basset Hound and a Newfoundland. Oh my. And the bunny lives with the Basset Hound in the Newfoundland? So, I mean, the bunny is like half the size of the Basset Hound. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. So she lives downstairs kind of in a pen. But no, when we let the dogs in there, they just kind of want to eat her food. And she just kind of sniffs at them and then gets whacked with their tail a lot and then hops away and annoyed. So yeah, they got along great. The bird is a dangerous one. She will try to kill the dogs. She's really? like, I'm going to get the tail. I'm going to get the tail. I'm going to get the tail. I don't know. Our dogs have no self-preservation skills. They will like lean against her cage and she's like biting at their fur and they just look at me like, save me. I'm like, move. <laughs> it's not that hard to save yourself. <laughs> just move. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. But the bird is perfect for COVID. She talks. She talks in like six different voices. I was never alone. I had her in my house instead. Nice. What's her most annoying phrase? Well, currently the most annoying thing is the fact that she beeps like the microwave, the Alexa, the cell phone, and the oven, and the fire alarm. So that's more of the annoying part. But she's been on a kick of saying my dad's name. So everyone has been, hi, Bob. Hi, Bob. Hi, Bob. My favorite phrase is my grandma taught her to say, taking the garbage out. Because she would show her a peanut, take the garbage out. And when she got back, she got a peanut. She stopped saying that a couple of years ago, but that was the longest phrase she had down. Our neighbors have a have a bird that talks and it picked up the phrase, who let the dog out? I've seen one online. And they have a dog. And so the dog's like, I'll go out and the dog will run to the door every time. And I'm sure that this bird just laughs. Well, Devin, this has been so fun and I've learned so much about the GC world and about you and all the great things that you're doing. And whenever I talk to people about finding you out in the social media world, I always say just she's this dot connector. She helps people connect the dots. Just go find her. She'll, you'll find all kinds of great information from her. So I thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I can't wait to put some links out there for uh, your your groups. If you're accepting new teens and young adults, I think that would be amazing to help people get more connected. And hopefully we can have you back on and maybe we'll have some questions from some of our listeners on Ask the GC, you know, Ask the GC your burning question. See what they say. Definitely. I would love it. I've done like LHON uh, sisterhood meetings where I went and just helped talk about inheritance and all that stuff and got questions asked. So I'm always down to help people. Like, it's bad. You send me stuff and I will be messaging you on a Saturday morning trying to help. It was really nice to meet you and, like, talk to you in depth. Like, I know you, but it's different from having, like, an hour to talk it to is. someone. So it has been great. And happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. And we'll talk more soon and I will send you all of the links to put in it. Okay, that's great. Thanks, Devin. Have a great day. 
Perfect. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into this week's episode of Energy in Action. I enjoyed my conversation with Devin, and I hope you did as well. Remember to give us a five-star rating on your listing app. This helps to boost us up the charts, and it also helps other people find our podcast. Be sure to join us next week for all things Mito. This is your host, Stephanie, Rare Mom Extraordinaire.